Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. It's nice to look around the room and see people who I haven't seen for a while. Sandra, <laughs> Christiane, home from Korea. I saw Kosu there in the corner in Santa Fe. Michael from Portland. So, including our introduction to the Lotus Sutra. Uh, well, in addition, I guess, we're at week number 10. So we've been studying the Lotus Sutra. I thought we were going to go chapter by chapter, but it's not quite that fast. And um, uh, we explored for a few weeks the theme of time and space in the Lotus Sutra, which we're going to come back to again. And um, there's a study group that is going to be reading... Uh, in addition to these classes on Tuesday evenings, Dan Layton's book, uh, looking at the way the Lotus Sutra influenced Dogen. So if anybody is interested in uh, joining that study group, you can talk to Mike Thursday. Uh, at the end of class. <clears throat> um, the beginning of this chapter, which is the parable of um, the treasure chest, um, starts off with uh, Purna uh, being very excited that um, he's hearing some of these teachings. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's nice to kind of, uh, uh, you know, give you my interpretation here, but it's also really lovely sometimes uh, reading. And uh, the Buddha says to Purna, or to, to the Sangha, you should not suppose that Purna is capable of protecting, upholding, aiding, and proclaiming the Dharma only. In the presence of 90 million Buddhas of the past, too, he protected, upheld, aided, and proclaimed the correct law of the Buddhas. So again, you get this play of, you know, many, many kalpas, many ojanas, all these ways of measuring space and time, to remind us that the Lotus Sutra is trying to uh, move away from this old school version of the Buddha as a person and think instead of the Buddha as a principle, as a cosmic principle. Because if you remember from a few weeks ago, if you think of the Buddha as a perfect being, then it kind of sets you up. 
or trying to be a perfect being. And the problem with having perfect beings around is that people compare themselves to them. And the other problem with having perfect beings around is that when you see them around for a while, they're not so perfect. <laughs> you know? And so the arhats were trying to be perfect, which could you imagine what it's like trying to be an arhat? You know, like fake it till you make it kind of thing. And then uh, what happens when people see that you're not so perfect? And it's all kind of messy and tragic, you know. Uh, so instead of everybody trying to be a Buddha, what about if you realize that you already are a Buddha? Wouldn't that be a little easier? Not that there isn't some work to do. There's a wonderful story um, about Shinra Suzuki, who uh, said to a group of students, you know, you're all so perfect, and when I look at you, I feel so much love until you open your mouth. <laughs> um, and then he said, you're perfect just the way you are, but there's room for a little improvement. <laughs> um, so, what happens is, uh, the Buddha goes on talking about Purna and how wonderful Purna is, not just in the present, but for hundreds, thousands, <coughs> millions of kalpas, Purna has been aiding people and serving people and helping people, and he truly is a Buddha. So then he gives Purna a prophecy. This happens a lot throughout the text, where uh, he realizes somebody is doing you know, quite well, and the Buddha gives them a prophecy, saying, um, you are going to have uh, a universe, and this is what's going to go on in the universe. This is what it will be like. And I'm not going to go through the details of the prophecy because we'll be here years mm -hmm. if we go through every prophecy. But the best part about receiving prophecies in the Lotus Sutra is that when everybody, someone receives a prophecy, they get up, they smile, and they start dancing. If you've ever read the Pali Canon, there's no dancing. There's no flowers raining from the sky, and there's definitely no dancing. Uh, in the Lotus Sutra, every time there's a prophecy, there's dancing. Are there any actors? Yeah. Jess, Jess. Can, you, can you show us like the no. face? When you get that feeling, and like you're... I think that when I was a kid, you know, we used to hang out like like big groups of Jews, you know, and the, and like at weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff, just like there's always like one man who gets up and has the feeling, and you can see the feeling in his face, and everyone knows to get up and dance. Can you do that? <laughs> I'm setting her up. <laughs> Does everybody know this 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 experience where? where you just have the feeling. And it's even before you get up and dance. So before Purna gets up and dances, 500 Buddhas see Purna's face and they get up and start dancing. And everybody is dancing. And this is a beautiful thing. And this is actually most of the pages of this chapter have to do with the way people came up, bowed to the Buddha, looked at each other's faces and started dancing. And... Uh, uh, I think it was two years ago, we were on New Year's retreat, and uh, on New Year's retreat, usually I uh, skip uh, one session of sitting so I can write the Dharma talk, and this was New Year's Eve, so I was writing the talk for midnight, 
And um, Carmen's already making the face, because I think you were there. And one person in the room started to giggle. <laughs> it's a silent retreat. Do you remember this, Carmen? Yes, I do. Yeah. One person started to giggle, and I'm quite. I'm down the hallway in another room, and you can hear it spreading across the room. You know, so I don't know if you've ever been on a retreat where this has happened. You know, and the giggling just goes on and on until the whole room is laughing. And uh, really, the only thing you can do is just to go for it, you know, and to really feel it, and then it dies down, and then everybody feels really badly, like as if they had done something wrong, you know, and. Um, and then the next day of interviews, it's all, was it okay that we were laughing? You know, the shame around it. So, uh, this can happen with dancing. Too. Maybe one night, uh, I'll be uh, preaching the Lotus Sutra. And that uh, somebody will just get that look on their face. And we'll start dancing. So, for those of you who think that Buddhism is like this solemn thing, all in black with dim lights, you know, and talking endlessly about suffering, um, read the Lotus Sutra, because there's so much dancing. It's really lovely. And dancing is even like more than compassion, isn't it? Dancing is just like the expression of your your heart. Really lovely. So... I don't know, maybe we'll get to dancing in our sangha. (laughs) So, I thought I would uh, uh, just read you the next section and then uh, offer some commentary. I want to read these, what is it, nine pages about dancing. Um, Okay, so then after all this dancing, there are 500 arhats... These are are perfect Buddhas. They're in the presence of the Buddha, and they've received their prophecy of enlightenment. And then um, they offer a parable. And you'll notice this is happening between every chapter. Some chapter, it's the Buddha in the chapter that's offering the parable. And sometimes when students understand it, they then return the parable and offer it back. So they are offering a parable. Uh, World-honored one. It's like the case of a man who went to the house of a close friend and having become drunk on wine, there's not a lot of that in the Pali, (laughs) having become drunk on wine, lay down and fell asleep. At that time, the friend had to go out on official business. He took a priceless jewel, sewed it into the lining of the man's robe, and left it with him when he went out. The man was asleep, drunk, and knew nothing about it. When he got up, he set out on a journey to other countries for years. In order to provide himself with food and clothing, he had to search with all his energy and diligence, encountering very great hardship and making do with what little he could come by. Later, the close friend happened to meet him by chance. The friend said, How absurd! Why should you do all this for the sake of food and clothing? In the past, I wanted to make certain you'd be able to live in ease and satisfy your basic desires. And so on such and such a day and such and such a month at a certain 
party. I took a priceless jewel and I sewed it into the lining of your robe. It must still be there now. Have a look. But you didn't know about it. And you fretted and you wore yourself out trying to provide a living for yourself. What nonsense. Now, take the jewel, exchange it for goods, and then you could have whatever wish at all times you need and never experience so much poverty and want. Isn't this beautiful? This generous man, who knows why he did this, but he went to this man at a party and he sewed a jewel uh, into this man's coat. And I think we all know this punchline. We all know this story, that we have this experience sometimes uh, of creating for ourselves phantom cities, which we explored last chapter, where we were invested in something, we worked really hard for it, only to realize we were there already. Maybe we didn't even need to do all that hard work. Or maybe we had to do all that hard work in order to realize that the city that we were trying to reach was only a phantom city. And maybe you have to enter the phantom city to realize it's a phantom city. Just like in our meditation on thinking. For the past several months, we've just been sitting in silence, no guided meditation, and every once in a while, we find ourselves kind of getting settled in our meditation practice. And sometimes it's good then to pick up a little technique. To see how the thoughts that we kind of start believing in, all of us, um, are just these uh, mirages, just these conditions. So, meanwhile, underneath all of that, in your own heart, uh, you have this jewel. And this is one of the main teachings of the Lotus Sutra. And the teaching is called Tathagatagarbha, which I'll get into in a minute. But first, I want to read a koan about this chapter of the Lotus Sutra. Daiju visited the master Baso in China. Baso asked, what do you seek? I, actually, this is my favorite part of the poem. Don't, don't lose this sentence. Um, this happens a lot uh, for those of you uh, on this path. Uh, I remember one time uh, when I first started practicing, I was in Detroit and I went to a Zen center and I went to the teacher and I said, I, I want to start practicing. And the teacher said, what do you want? I was uh, 20 years old. What do you want? What do you mean, what do I want? I'm here, I just, I don't know what I want. And that was, then he rang the little bell. <laughs> and there was an assistant who said, okay, that's it. <laughs> and this question kind of haunted me. And uh, I think it took many years to realize the import of just this phrase, what do you want? And maybe some of us, when we're not in touch with ourselves, we don't know what we want. We don't. So this is a real clarifying question. What do you want? Daiju responds, enlightenment. Basso then says, you have your own treasure house. Why do you search outside? Daiju then said, Treasure house? 
Where's my treasure house? And Basso said, what you are asking is your treasure house. So this is interesting, because he doesn't know what he's asking. Right? He doesn't know what he's asking. He wants to practice. The teacher's saying, like, what do you really want? And he doesn't know. So he just says, like, that's the stock answer. You're going to a teacher, what do you want? Enlightenment. And as we explored in, in yoga classes, you know, one of the things we're doing in our yoga classes is we're, we're taking this kind of youthful and idealistic idea of transcendence, and we're continually uh, reducing it back down to the craft of yoga poses. And we're using the yoga postures to see Indra's net. We're using the yoga postures to see the, the circuit, the circuits. In other words, uh, this is what we're doing. We're taking every idea we have about transcending our body, transcending our life, transcending thinking, and turning it back into craft over and over again. And then we realize you have a treasure house. Now, the funny thing uh, about this, this story... Do you want me to go through the koan again? Yeah? Okay. Uh, Daiju visited the master Basso in China. Basso asked, what do you seek? Enlightenment, replied Daiju. You have your own treasure house. Why do you search outside? Daiju then said, treasure house? Where is my treasure house? Basso answered, what you are asking is your treasure house. What you are asking <coughs> is the net. You don't need to get out of the net. You just need to see the net. So um, the story goes, that's not in the koan, but the story is that Daiju later became a very well-respected teacher. And the only thing he taught is it, he would have people get really quiet and then he would yell at them, Open the treasure chest. <laughs> Could you imagine that? We're all sitting here. We're really quiet. And, you know, uh, you know, probably he was an old man at the time, maybe 60, 70, 80, and he would just yell, Open the treasure chest! And isn't this the teaching we all need? I want to get enlightened. Just open the treasure chest. Where's the treasure chest? Well, that question um, is what you're looking for. That question is exactly what you're looking for. It's very nice, isn't it? Where do I find this jewel? It's sewed right into your coat. The whole time. It's been sewed right into your coat. So, um, Dogen says something about this that I thought you might like. I do. <laughs> uh, this is from the Shobo Genzo. So this is 1223, uh, writing in Japan. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. Isn't that nice? Usually, those who have great realization, you know, they're awake. Dogen says, no. Those who have great realization of their delusion are Buddhas. Maybe the treasure chest is not sparkling. Maybe it's not all gold. Yeah? 
And maybe we have an ideal of what the treasure chest is, so we start looking outside to get more ideas about what the treasure chest might be, and then we miss the treasure chest. Because maybe your wounds and the shadows that you're moving around in, you know, maybe these also are the treasures in the chest of this uh, body and in the net, in the whole net. But we're so busy thinking treasures look one particular way. And this, again, is the story from last week of the Phantom City. So some travelers are on a road, they get really tired, they want to turn back. The leader of the group says, no, rest here tonight, have a good sleep, there's a beautiful hotel here. Everybody rests, then they wake up in the morning, and then the leader says, you can't stay here, this is just a phantom hotel, this is Las Vegas, and I just invented this for you to have a rest, because you needed a rest. And then we learn in the Lotus Sutra that the phantom city can be compared to the peace of nirvana. That the Buddha taught the teachings of nirvana just to get people on the path. And then all of these arhats got nirvana, and the Buddha said, but no, nirvana was just a skillful means. It was just a phantom city to get you to keep going down this really bad road. (laughs) Remember how bad the road was? That's why they got so tired, because the road was really bad. And maybe our lives are like this. Like, some of us have realized that we've been invested in phantom cities. Somebody pulls the plug. Usually not us. Usually your manager, or, or, you know, your your ex-lover. Or maybe your ex-lover was also your manager. (laughs) They pull the plug, and then uh, we realize this was a phantom city, and we have to keep going down the road. But the problem is, is you don't know what the road is going to be like. And, like, just because you've realized a phantom city doesn't mean the road gets smooth. You know. Doesn't mean the road gets smooth. So that's why Dogen says, what is a Buddha? A Buddha is somebody who wakes up to delusion. Does Dogen say this is somebody who's free of delusion? No, not free of delusion. Whenever you encounter someone who says that they are free of delusion, (laughs) you should give them a little. (laughs) A little delusion. A little delusion. I'll say a couple more things and then I kind of want to, want to open it up. Um, when you wake up to your own treasure chest, um, then you also simultaneously wake up to others. And when you get sensitive to the way that your treasure chest is made up of gold and wounds, then you can begin to see that in other people. 
This is a helpful lesson, I think, for all of us. And this creates some dissonance. The dissonance between being free and feeling the pain of others. And that both of those things are treasures. So, um, if you can open up to one being. Did anybody try this on Sunday? Just opening up to one being. Just opening up to your mom. It's so hard sometimes. Just, Just to really give your time and your face and your attention and your ears to your mom. It doesn't matter if she's alive or not alive. If she's healthy or if she's sick. Or maybe some people don't even know who their mom was. And still it's Mother's Day. And our job on Mother's Day is to appreciate that there are mothers and also maybe to try and see the people underneath the mothers. Sometimes we're so busy comparing our mothers to an archetypal version of a mother that we really miss her. And if we're doing that to her, she's probably doing that to us. Right? She's turning you into a daughter and a son. And so she misses you. And then you might realize, from the Lotus Sutra perspective, that if you can open up to one other person, why stop there? If you can do this with your mother, why stop there? In yoga, traditionally, there are something called samskaras of relationships. And students would not be allowed to study with a teacher unless they fulfilled certain samskaras. And one of the samskaras is making peace with your parents. So a teacher would not actually take you on as a student unless you've made peace with your parents. And I find this quite interesting. I mean, we all know the mess that we make in relationships with people of authority when we haven't given them um, our hearts only because they've been wounded in our relationships with our parents. So this is kind of interesting, I think. And then to realize that the only way this can happen is through healing and uh, acceptance of your own treasure chest without idealizing what you think a treasure chest is. And if you deflate your own treasure chest, then you'll inflate it somewhere else. You'll inflate it in someone else, which just deflates your own treasure chest, which doesn't make it a treasure chest, does it? Um, So, Tathagatagarbha, the womb of the Buddha. Um, This idea of the womb um, is so disliked by Stephen Batchelor. This idea that inside you, you have some essence that is gold, that is a treasure, that is a possibility according to Stephen, and also according to many uh, current Japanese uh, 
uh, scholars, is the opposite of Buddhism. This idea that you have an essence in you, that you have something eternal in you, that if you just look inward, there is some gold inside a rock. And if you just mine the rock, you'll find the gold. Um, That there is some bit of us that's exempt from the messiness of existence. But I think actually a careful reading of the Lotus Sutra shows us that this is not really how the term Tathagatagarbha is being used here. Because it's a little more like a lotus flower. A lotus flower grows out of the mud, and its leaves are very uh, uh, clean and pure, and it's in the mud at the same time. And a lotus flower is not eternal. A lotus flower only exists in conditions. Likewise, the kindness that you could say is in us is conditional. Likewise, an embryo, a womb, an infant, all of us, we're conditioned, we're conditional, we're not eternal, we're not separate from the mess of our lives. So if we think of an embryo like a lotus flower, has anybody seen a lotus flower before? Growing in the mess? And to see that as your own life, that both exist, is to wake up to this treasure chest. Or, as Dogen says, uh, is also to see yourself as a Buddha. And what is it to see yourself as a Buddha? To wake up to your delusions, not from your delusions. And maybe this is how we generate compassion. Because some of us have delusions that are never going to end in this lifetime. Sorry. They're not, I mean, I know some of you are hard at work, practicing, working so hard. Blue-collar Buddhism, you know, getting your hands dirty and, like, doing the craft. And at the same time, and at the same time, um, you have addictions, and you have habits, and you have relational styles, and you have social fears, you know, that you might not work out. Don't we all think we can just talk it through? (laughs) Has anyone been frustrated from, you know, having a friend and you're just trying to talk it through and talk it through? You can't. So there can be real healing in recognizing that the inability to talk it through is also the treasure chest. So it's not like there's this womb of kindness in you that just goes on eternally. Although that can be a mistake in a way of thinking about it. But your Buddha nature includes delusion. It's not separate from delusion. This making sense a little bit? It's not based on a split between the lotus and the mud. So I was doing a little bit of uh, library time. The term Tathagatagarbha comes into English as the term Buddha nature. Everyone's heard this before? This comes into English in 1940. It's quite interesting. Through the writings of D.T. Suzuki, who was translating from Chinese and Japanese, and he was translating the word, the Chinese word fo shin. Um, Shin means nature or essence. And fo is the Chinese term for Buddha. So Buddha, nature. 
Buddha essence. Um, but the Chinese, a thousand years earlier, translated the term from Sanskrit inaccurately. The term Shin was translated uh, from the Sanskrit word Garba, which means womb. So the term womb, or potential, was translated as essence. Or a, and then came into English as the word nature. But I think it kind of misses this Lotus Sutra sense of Buddha nature, which is that Buddha nature is potential. It's a possibility of being awake to delusion. Does this make sense? It doesn't mean you have in you this thing called Buddha nature, like some kind of soul that's sitting there all the time waiting for you just to realize it. Uh, some perfect, I don't know what's perfect. Shrimp tempura. <laughs> it's like a piece of shrimp tempura sitting in there eternally. Or you, that might be disgusting. <laughs> I was just in Portland, Oregon, and they, there's this restaurant there called Bamboo. You should all go to. Not only do they have great sake, but they have gluten-free tempura. This is like the most exciting thing. Uh, and the shrimp are uh, raised, you know, ethically, somehow. So then you can eat, eat them ethically. Because if something's raised ethically, you can just eat it ethically. Yeah. So shrimp tempura oh, at bamboo is really, really good. The only person there who had no dreadlocks, by the way. <laughs> so, um, exactly, yeah. Uh, so, I was thinking, what if we imagine this idea of a womb, and we think, another way of thinking about this, rather than Tathagatagarbha, as Buddha nature, is waking up to this jewel in our coat, which is waking up to belonging. Waking up to a sense of belonging. What happens when you see thoughts as thoughts is that you're no longer separate. And the feeling of that quietude is a feeling of belonging, a sense of belonging, a sense of being home. And maybe the experience of dukkha we can translate not so much as suffering but as frustration, the frustration of not feeling at home, like you belong. So anyways, this is one way we can think. What do you find at the end of the road, at the end of this path that's many yojanas long? You find this, but you find a this in which you belong. Now we experience this, and we don't experience this, this, as a place where we belong. But the Lotus Sutra is trying to get you into a place of faith, of devotion, to have devotion to the Lotus Sutra as a symbol of a road that is a mess and jeweled, which is this, this place that you all belong. And maybe not seeing the jewel in our coat is a way of running away from this place that we inherently belong and all the damage that we cause.
by not seeing how we belong here. And taking care of here, like we belong here. Um, And this creates uh, self-judgment, feelings of insufficiency, and um, stinginess. Because when we're not satisfied with our jewels and our wounds, we get stingy. In other words, we hold back. We can't serve and we can't give. And uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, the near, the, the near enemy of uh, generosity uh, is stinginess. Um, or we get inflated. If we feel insufficiency, another thing we do is feel inflated. Has anybody ever been like this before? You know, you can go deflated, and then you go inflated, back and forth. Both of which are not being home, not belonging. And when you're inflated, it makes the resources in the world contract. They're trying to get away from you. Like other people. When you're inflated, it not only oppresses people, it compresses people. It compresses resources when you're inflated. And those resources uh, shrink away, and it's subtle. Um, We can also oppress others by giving too much. Kind of collusion. Have you ever done this before? Just by giving too much. And then, you know, I hate to say it in this room, but there are also some people who are just too much. Have you noticed this? Like, too smart, too clever, too generous, too perfect. Maybe you're one of those people. (laughs) When somebody is just too sophisticated, too cultural, and and too rich, it, it dampens. It dampens others. It dampens other people's treasures. Did Kosu say that? (laughs) (laughs) Because they're they're being inflated when they're like it's not authentic, or what do you mean? It's not balanced with a sense of the way other people belong. It's not just that you belong, but other people belong too. And if you take up a lot of room, it kind of dampens the, the energy in that part of the web. You know. Just like in your body, you know. Uh, Christiane, tonight we were working on your kidneys, right? Mm-hmm. So in the front of the body, the heart's open. And then, you know, we all have different areas. So one area might be trying to keep your ribs contained. So during extension, you can have breath in your kidneys because the inhale has to be anchored to something. So what do you anchor the inhale to? The pattern of the exhale. Right? What do you anchor the treasures that are gleaming to? You anchor it to your, your woundedness. And when someone is just too big, they're not anchored 
they're not anchored in a way where other people can also participate. And um, when somebody's too small, and they make themselves too small, uh, they dampen the energy around them also. And maybe this is the one symptom that is so insidious in our culture now. This kind of uh, trance of self-judgment. Which it seems we can't go a few weeks without talking about it. Why? Because the Lotus Sutra names it perfectly. So, I'm wondering if we could just do a short little exercise before we call it a night. Uh, if you, if if any of you just feel like you get it and you're just you totally understand all that, you can leave <laughs> because you might dampen the energy in the room. You know. Yeah, we won't watch. We'll all close our eyes and you can, you can go. Um, I was wondering if we can do an exercise similar to what we did around the Phantom City, where if you could just find a partner, and if you could just share with your partner. Um, a story, like an, a short example of a time that someone sewed something in your coat and you didn't realize it, maybe for years. Last time we did an exercise where someone's pulled the plug, <laughs> which is not a different exercise, actually. Can you share a time where maybe somebody, maybe your mother, sewed something into your own coat and you didn't realize it. Can everybody relate to a story like this? What do you mean exactly? Not literally. Yeah, literally. Literally. Are you talking about like the jewel thing? Like a what thing? Your your treasure chest? You have a treasure. You didn't realize it. Yeah. Somebody has sewn one into your coat and one day maybe you realize, oh, that so-and-so person at that party when I was drunk gave me something. But I was so drunk that I didn't realize what they gave me. Maybe I didn't even want to acknowledge what they gave me. So I would like you to share this with a partner. And there's a certain way I want to do it, which is Passover style. So, when you go to... Has anyone here ever been to a Seder? All right. So, I, I just came back to Seder life. I retired for 20 years. Um, at a Seder, you're supposed to recline. Do you know about this? So, you know, this is a good way to get to know. Should we demonstrate? Okay. okay Elaine and I are going to demonstrate. Did we demonstrate last time? Yeah, we did. Okay. So you're going to recline like this. <laughs> have you ever heard of pillow talk? Pillow talk is like when you have to talk with your lover about something and like you wait till you're just about sleeping. Yeah. The room's dark, the eyes closed, and when you put your head on the pillow, then you just say it. You know? And then you don't sleep for <laughs> Or you sleep and they don't. Okay, so I want you to recline with your partner. <laughs> And I just want you to share with them this, this story uh, in reclining form. And uh, take two minutes, no more than two minutes each. So this whole exercise will take four minutes. Just to share a story about when a, you discovered that something had been sewn into your coat, literally. 
<laughs> <laughs> okay, so on your own.